Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast we have Shahid Buttar. You may be wondering, who's that? He's running against Nancy Pelosi for Congress here in San Francisco. Pelosi's under the gun all over the country, and here's one of the options uh, of people who, who are running against her. Uh, he is a Stanford-educated lawyer. He worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation to, uh, on digital privacy issues. And he's a rapper. We, we will listen to his rapping today on It's All Political. Shahid. Welcome to It's All Political. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. We are, we are live, well, not as live as a podcast can be in the Chronicle <laughs> newsroom here. And I was very excited to get you on because you are one of the most interesting candidates in, in terms of profile that I've talked to for a long time. And the podcast medium, I think, will capture you the best. You, you, you speak um, very, uh, you know, very uh, intense arguments and, and dense and, I don't want to say dense, but uh, in-depth arguments. And I have a honestly, lot to say, sir. You have yeah. a lot to say, so I should just <laughs> shut the hell up and so we can start talking here. You are a Stanford-educated lawyer. You're a street activist. You're a rapper, a political rapper, and now a congressional candidate taking on Nancy Pelosi and... Um, and we'll get back to it. But I think we, we may have first met on the street maybe 14 years ago, 15. And when I think you were, I was looking up the story actually this morning where you were, had chained yourself outside Bechtel headquarters. Right. Um, and I always remembered that protest. I don't know why. And you're also involved in the, in the day that um, the anti-war protest in 2003 where the San Francisco was shut down. There was more than 1,100 people arrested and stuff. But we'll, we'll get to all that. But first... I want you to tell everybody about your uh, coming to America story. You are an immigrant uh, from England of Pakistani descent. That's right. Okay. How, so, how did you get and here? You, how did you get here <laughs> and yeah. to, of all places, Rosebud, Missouri? Yeah, that's a fun story. So I was born in 74 in England to a family in the Pakistani diaspora. We'd fled Pakistan fleeing religious discrimination as a minority sect that was decried as heretical. We were in England for about, uh, well, in my mom's case, much longer, but for my family as a whole, about 10 years. And I was born toward the end of that. We came in 1976 to the rural Midwest. We landed in Rosebud, Missouri, a town of between three and 350 people. So how'd you, how'd you wind up there? It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a dart on the map. It is know? exactly a dart on the map. And I wish there were a better story for it. But the long story short, my dad, uh, met a real estate agent at a barbecue at an extended family member's house who lived nowhere nearby and, uh, bought the first house he could find in which he could fit his four kids. And there we stayed for uh, 10 years. It's a, it's very typical in some respects in that I think a lot of immigration reflects people, uh, being driven by circumstances to leave where they're from and trying to just figure it out. You know, oftentimes people who uh, are driven to migration don't necessarily have uh, a very concrete plan of, of what to do. It's more about getting out of a situation and gaining access to opportunities. And in that respect, you know, my life kind of resembles the American dream. You know, I'm a post-colonial person who was brought to the United States. I was raised here. I was educated here. I've done all of my work here. 
And not only did I have access to very compelling educational opportunities, Stanford Law and, and other places as well, but it really that experience of growing up in the United States as an immigrant, particularly at this time in history, acquainted me with a very deep commitment to our nation's principles. And so, I'm, yeah, because how many people looked like you or, or Muslim in, in about rural Missouri? Right. The whole town had two last names other than ours. It was the no. Pullmans and the Waymeyers. No, really. I mean, there were, there were only two families that, that constituted this town. <laughs> and I called them all uncle and aunt until I was nine. I really had no awareness of race because it was such a small place. Uh, you know, I had an awareness of prejudice because we definitely... Uh, got our share of that in school. But racism really requires power and prejudice. And the people we were among had no power. I mean, this was a rural community uh, of, of people who, uh, quite frankly, didn't, I think they had a lot fewer opportunities than we did. Uh, in retrospect, certainly thinking back over the you know course of the things I've had a chance right, to do. Right. So, so how, how did that shape you growing up in that area? So you were there from two until... 10. 10. Yeah. And then we moved into suburban St. Louis and I went to Chicago for my undergrad degree. Yeah. And that was a, a long saga before I came to the Bay Area. But I'd say raised, being raised in the Midwest acquainted me with a few things. You know, one is a very deep seated commitment to, and I say this word intentionally, patriotism. I am rabidly patriotic insofar as I care very deeply about America's founding principles. I care very deeply about the inscription on the Statue of Liberty. I care very deeply about the Constitution. And I think these are principles that a lot of Americans, without having had to you know, be part of a migration, without having had to endure marginalization, might not have as robust an awareness of. But to me, freedom and liberty are not abstract concepts. And uh, they're, they're principles that I not only care very deeply about, but I'm willing to do anything to defend. And was that, how much of that is rooted in, in your experience there? Or is that something that evolved over time? I would say some of it evolved over time, but a lot of it is rooted there. For instance, you know, one of the things I'm campaigning on is veterans' rights and entering veteran homelessness. And my commitment to veterans comes to some extent from growing up among military families. My own family is military. My brother uh, was in the Army Medical Corps. And so to some extent that the is... U.S. Army. U.S. Army yes, Medical Army. Corps, that's right. Uh, yeah, he did ROTC and uh, served uh, in South Carolina, um, also in Texas and Korea for a number of years. But the... I did, you know, I was a Boy Scout. My brothers were Eagle Scouts. You know, that sensibility, uh, I would say to some extent, is driving my race. I mean, if, if, I, if I had the opportunity to turn a blind eye and just go about my life, as I think many people do, that would be fine. But I think gr growing up in the Midwest is one of the reasons why I'm very committed to the rights of my neighbors and mm -hmm. a sense of neighborliness it's, that it's forces very, my attention. It's a small town. Everybody knows each other. Yeah. So you found your way, as you said, to Loyola in Chicago and uh, went to undergrad there. And at, when were you sort of, um, I don't want to say radicalized, but activated, uh, sort of tuned in politically? Was yeah. it there? Was it Stanford? Somewhere in between? Before, actually. So my faith community, while we were growing up in rural Missouri, <clears throat> was centered in the city of St. Louis and happens to be somewhat bifurcated. Uh, there are, <clears throat> in the congregation that I grew up in, a fairly substantial uh, proportion of, of immigrants, particularly of Pakistani descent, and mm -hmm. an equally large proportion of African Americans. And the socioeconomic disparity between those communities was very obvious and visible to me. So I had an awareness of that distinction very early. Mm -hmm. uh, I was 16 years old when I graduated high school and I started college at the University of Chicago. My parents lost the house that we basically lived in for the six years before I finished high school as that was happening. And that was re really experientially reinforced the earlier impression I had of socioeconomic inequity. You know, a year after starting college, I was basically on the street because I couldn't afford, even after maxing out all my federal aid, to pay for tuition at a private 
expensive college. Right. And then I you went to work. Enough money to place to live. Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I couch surfed. I suppose in formal terms, I was homeless, though my yeah. friend spared me from the worst of that experience. You know, I only spent a couple nights on the street, literally. Mostly I had a roof over my head. Oh. Uh, and then I went to work and I, I worked a series of jobs. I had two careers and I finished them by the time I finished college 10 years later. After What were those uh, careers? So I worked for a while in uh, investment banking. I was a lackey to investment bankers at uh, J.P. Morgan, at Merrill Lynch, and at Chase um, the J.P. Morgan before the Chase merger, uh, Solomon Smith Barney before its subsequent mergers, and Merrill Lynch at the time. And all those all of those firms have now merged with others, and so they almost don't exist in their original iterations. But at the time, I was basically uh, designing presentation graphics, uh, running numbers. You know, I was I was young and hungry, both literally and figuratively, and uh, smart enough to pick up the work. And so you're taught me a lot 16 or 17 doing uh, 19, 19 when I started at Merrill. Yeah. Wow. And you're so you're working during the day, and then you went back to school. Yeah, they basically sent me back to school at night, and I maxed out the the night credits at more or less every one of the community colleges in Chicago. And then I went to Loyola uh, for two years during the day while working for Solomon Smith Barney at night from like five p.m. until the last person went home at two or three in the morning or whenever that was. And so, then, so you're working at Solomon Smith Barney, and this is. Uh, you know, we're, I guess the dot-com boom and bust Late is 90s. happening yeah, yep. at this uh, time. What, how did that shape you? I watched Netscape go public and the valuation metrics defy every known law of finance. And I remember at the time thinking that this is, something is wrong here. And, and, and I think to some extent, the valuation and the overvaluation of equities in the United States and the extent to which the stock market dis inaccurately represents the economic health of the country. That was something I, I witnessed, you know, sort of right. for the, the, the bifurcation of our economy into a 1% versus 99%. And I was also there when we were pushing a lot of derivatives. And while I think at the time, uh, you know, they make economic sense when you look at the models, it was also very clear to me that, that there was an attempt to create value out of nothing. And when the 2008 financial crisis hit, yeah. having worked on deal teams 10 years before crafting these instruments, it, to me, was not entirely surprising that a deck wow. of cards got blown over. Or a and house of cards, I should say. Got when you talk about that bifurcation, the president's talking about that right now. He's like, oh, look, look, the economy's great. The stock market's great. But what, only 50, 52% of Americans even hold stock. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an odd measure of, of the health of uh, an American's uh, financial Absolutely. picture. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a not inaccurate picture of corporate health, but right. certainly not working Americans. And if I may, I would say there, there's a, a grand ruse that's happened there insofar as 401k plans and various ways in which people can participate in the stock market, whether through mutual funds or their retirement accounts, they give the illusion of participation in the equity market to middle class and working class people without its substance. And while people, I think, feel an attachment, if they have any assets at all in financial markets to the fortunes of the 1% and the corporations, ultimately, you know, it, it is pennies that trickle down. Uh, right. And I think that's worth people remembering. So, and then how'd you wind up that you went to Stanford then uh, for law school? So, so you, was, you've gone from like borderline homeless to Stanford law school in the space of what, about five years? Uh, six, seven six, years. Six, seven years. Seven okay, years, yeah. So I was working at Solomon Smith Barney. I was studying political science at Loyola University. I was being recruited by the State Department to serve as a diplomat in the Foreign Service. Because this is post 9 11, right? Uh, this is pre. Pre 9 11, yeah, okay. This is late Because okay, so you, you graduated in 2003, okay. Sorry. That's right. Yeah, I'd, I'd come to, I was at Stanford when 9 11 happened, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But basically, I wrote a thesis about the opportunities for radical redistribution within the context of a market economy. My, my wow. grand aspiration is to fuse 
Karl Marx and Adam Smith, and I think I see how that happens, and it's about equal opportunity in a robust way that we've never seriously considered wow. in this country. It is ambitious, right? It's very. Um, that's, and it, that's, it, almost, that's almost so ambitious, I need like a bong hit to understand that. That's just like, <laughs> that is incredible. Okay, we, we, can't, we will break that down in another podcast. Perhaps, I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to dive yeah, into yeah. it because that is where a lot of my passions yeah. lie. You know, this yeah. idea of iconoclasm, intellectual iconoclasm, and seeking opportunities to combine theoretically opposed poles. And, yeah. and ultimately, the, the paper that I wrote for my undergrad thesis got me some attention. I don't know if that was particularly what got me into Stanford Law School, but uh, you know, I went basically from studying at community colleges and being a night student to going to Stanford Law and teaching constitutional law there when my third year wow. as a teaching assistant for, yeah. for Larry Lessig. And it was an incredible time in my life at Stanford, I would say, is where I got maybe not radicalized, but my concern shifted when I started school. Informed by my time working for investment banks, I really wanted to bust big corporations. You know, I came out of my investment banking career such that it was basically on the same train as the Occupy movement, which emerged 10 years later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I went to Stanford. I was studying antitrust law when the Bush versus Gore decision was announced. And that revealed to me very starkly that what passes for law in this country is much thinner than we might, might mm. think. And then over the course of the rest of my time there came the 9-11 attacks, the Patriot Act. Bush's invasion of Iraq. And for me, by the end of that process, while I was still going to law school and teaching law uh, for, for Larry, I was basically full-time committed to the... And, and by Larry, we mean uh, Professor Larry Lessig. That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, someone I admire and <clears throat> from whom I've been very fortunate to learn a great deal. And when the, when the run-up to the invasion of Iraq began, it was actually an SF Chronicle story, now that I think about it, that I first read about direct action to stop the war, which was meeting at Father Louis Vital's church uh, in the Tenderloin. And I went to a meeting, and six months later, I was here with 500 students from Stanford alongside wow. 20,000 other San Franciscans and people from around the Bay Area who put our bodies on the line and said no to a corporate invasion that was ultimately about stealing resources. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> Alan Greenspan even admitted and said it was at one point in the mid-2000s that at that time it was uh, long past the point of, of admitting what everybody knew, that the invasion of Iraq was about securing oil resources. Right. And Which at the time, the Bush administration was like, oh, no, this isn't. They, they laughed at the no blood for oil signs, but that's exactly what it was about. Absolutely. And when, when you saw me get arrested at Bechtel, that was yeah. about, you know, we not only supposedly liberated this country, but then we took the water and were selling it back to the people who had water in their own country before we came. And that, to me, was one of the most visible reflections of the aims of the war that it was resource-driven, that it was about privatizing resources and monetizing resources that were not ours to begin with. And I find that very offensive. And so, um, and let's, I just want one, a couple of minutes on, on that day, which is one of the most, and I've covered activism for many years and many different, you know, all over the country and stuff, but that day where activists, including yourself and organizers, um, essentially shut down the financial district of San Francisco and, uh, and the police, I, I, they knew it was coming, but not to that degree. And it was a level of coordination. Uh, there was intersections stopped all over the place. Mm -hmm. there was, I think the BART was stopped at some point, I think. And um, over a thousand people were arrested. Um, what, what were your memories for that day? And how did that, how did that uh, uh, shape me? Shape you, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, one of my first memories of that day was being pepper sprayed at six o'clock in the morning by an irate commuter. Uh, we were holding an intersection in Soma and someone got out of their car and assaulted me. And it was a remarkable reflection of the state of dissent in San Francisco that the police there actually wrote the person a ticket uh, and, and intervened on our behalf. It said, you can't uh, you can't assault people, even if they're standing in your way. 
it's interesting to juxtapose this in 2014 in December, I was part of a Black Lives Matter protest in Washington, D.C., where I was the target of a vehicular assault by a person driving an SUV who basically drove it into a crowd. Um, And so you can see sort of differing sensibilities on opposite coasts about the right of people, at least. And and maybe this maps to time because these were, you know, incidents 10 years removed. But the, when we laid siege to the city of San Francisco, that taught me that people power is real. You know, we, we discuss in law school abstract principles about sovereignty and hearing and the consent of the governed. And it was the seizure of San Francisco nonviolently by 20,000 people that mm-hmm. led me to understand how that actually is a real principle, that the consent of the governed is not abstract, that we can pull that lever, that we can delegitimate institutions and we can insist on alternatives. And that's basically what I've been doing in other ways over the course of my 15 years defending the rights of San Franciscans and other Americans since. And then you uh, went to work for, uh, fast forward a little bit, um, to, for the Electronic Frontier Foundation here yeah. in uh, San Francisco, which does a lot of uh, leading edge work on privacy and uh, and all kinds of stuff. We're basically watching out for some of the rights that uh, or concerns that they have about how uh, tech companies have a lot of our information. And tell us a little bit about the work you did there. Yeah. So my job at EFF, I was the director of grassroots advocacy. <clears throat> and I theoretically am still on staff there, though, on leave to, mm-hmm. to run for Congress, it being a 501c3 that's prohibited from electioneering. But my, my role there has been to build a national network, uh, a grassroots network for the digital rights movement. And some of the principles that we've been pushing through that network include net neutrality, which has become a very sharp concern, obviously, in the last six months, uh, executive transparency and congressional oversight over mass surveillance, Uh, for instance, at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, um, digital security trainings for activists to make sure that, for instance, immigrant rights groups can organize without uh, fear uh, being preyed upon by the government. And maybe just one snippet there just to give an example of this. In, uh, I think it was last summer, the summer of 2017 or maybe 2016, when I got a call from a reporter in Detroit who had fortunately seen a warrant application for the use of a Stingray, a cell site simulator mm-hmm. tool to spy on cell phone networks that was being used in this context by Customs and Border Protection not to ensure national security, not to uh, pursue any public safety threat, but rather to track down and locate an undocumented immigrant to deport. And, you know, the, the fusion there of the military industrial complex, local surveillance and predatory immigration enforcement would, you know, sort of neatly encapsulates oh the sort God. of intersection among some of these issues. And uh, today on the, on the day we're recording this, um, Gina Haspel has been uh, confirmed or sworn in, I should say, yeah. as the uh, new head of the CIA. The Criminal and Intelligence Agency? The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we uh, and and I, I'd, I'd like to use this as a as a way to highlight one of your other unique uh, aspects as a candidate. You are a rapper. You've uh, for what 15, 16 years. You've held a collective, uh, led a collective uh, at the Sixteenth and Mission Bart Stop. Uh, we just celebrated it? our fifteenth anniversary last week. Oh, actually, 15th anniversary. yeah, yeah. So every every week for fifteen years has been an open mic uh, at Sixteenth and Mission among poets and spoken word artists who we've pulled together over time to and, share their work. And this came out of the, the anti-war movement. Yeah, yeah. at the time yeah. in two thousand three. So we started the Stanford Spoken Word Collective the year before, and it's still also now going and thriving. And uh, I'm very excited to see the young people there raising their voices. And it was the just after the invasion. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess Bush had invaded Iraq in March. That was when we seized the city. It was around the time that you saw me at the Bechtel 
initial protest. That would have yeah. been in the summer while I was studying for the bar exam. Another thing I was doing over that summer was performing an open mic. I met a bunch of poets. We started using poetry to hold public space, yeah. not unlike what the Occupy movement did 10 years later. And so using politicized public performance, we started the gathering at 16th and Mission as a training ground to learn how to hold public space and teach other people how to use their wow. poetry to hold public space. And ultimately the training ground stuck even after the action model, you know, uh, long faded. So, and, and you're incorporating some, uh, some, some wrapping into your, uh, campaign. into your campaign. So you got something on the CIA and torture. Sure. Yeah. Right, let's uh, go. Give us a few lines. 20 different countries facilitated torture and we won't ever know the whole story for sure. We fought a world war to establish human rights abandoned by weak leaders, pimping fright, heinous blights, no oversight. I'm talking about murdering innocent people in the night, drone assassinations at the latest height, but multiple continents share the same plight in a war on terror, a war on drugs, perpetrated by the same circle of thugs, call it a prison military industrial complex being fueled by funds funneled from your paychecks. Wow. Yeah. Appreciate that. Is that is the second best uh, rapping we've had in, in, on the podcast next to Diane Feinstein. Uh, to say. <laughs> I don't know quite what to yeah, say yeah. about that, but I look forward to, to, to yeah, hopefully having a battle have, with her That soon. might have been cut from the final product. I don't know if it was. Maybe we can have a wrap battle. I think you should have a face I would love off. it. I would love it. <laughs> Um, Especially so, given Senator Feinstein's complicity in the CIA torture yes, cases I, that led Gina Haspel to now be the, the head of the agency. And, I, and I'd say, you know, at the risk of being uh, uh, too forceful here, that Nancy Pelosi, the incumbent in the seat that I'm running for, uh, is also complicit in human rights abuses. She was read into Bush-era enhanced interrogation techniques as she, early as... She, and when you say read in, she knew about this stuff. She was one of the small circle of legislators who knew what was going on. That's right. Point. Yeah, and, and, and multiple uh, figures in the Bush administration have confirmed since that they told her what they were doing, and instead of her raising an alarm, as she was obligated to do by her oath of office, as partisan politics would have suggested doing, given that it was a Republican president abusing human rights, as she was required under international legal principles that we fought a world war to secure, instead of raising an alarm, she swept it under the rug. And that's one of the reasons why we now have unapologetic torturers running federal agencies. So... Why you are a super smart guy, you've got you've multiple talents. Why are you running for Congress? And you kind of jumped in the race late to in February. Yeah. Um, uh, you had the right, you know, the, one of the guys running, uh, Steve Jaffe, Stephen Jaffe has been running for a year. Ryan Costage has, has been um, jumped in a couple months ago. Why, why are you running for Congress? And, and you know, I think a lot of people in the Bay Area are like, well, ah, Pelosi, she's, you know, she she's, rings all the progressive bells. She's been here. She raises a lot. Of, the party loves her because she, she raises a ton of money and she right. reminds them of that all the time. Right. <laughs> what, uh, but why... What would you do differently than Nancy Pelosi? What what do you what are you running on? Uh, so I'll start there, and then I'll get to why I'm running because yeah. they're they're somewhat distinct uh, questions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the issues I'm running on include Medicare for all. They include reviving the federal budget for affordable housing, block grants through HUD, which have fallen through the floor under Nancy Pelosi's tenure. Uh, I'm running on ending the war on drugs and legalizing cannabis, not only as a civil rights imperative, but to unleash a wave of green jobs across the country in cultivating and distributing a plant that is carbon sequestering and nitrogen fixing. So there's environmental externalities that are positive in this industry, unlike negative ones in the fossil fuel industries. I'm also running to end mass surveillance and finally force a judicial warrant requirement between so that the American people have an independent arbiter between them and the executive agencies that subject us to more spying domestically than any people in the history of the earth potentially have been subjected to, including the you know folks who, who lived behind the Iron Curtain uh, mm-hmm. during the era of the Warsaw Pact. Computers did not exist then, 
in nearly the same way that they have become ubiquitous now in right. the United States. And the, You also want to close some defense bases overseas, too. That's right. Yeah, I'm very eager to get the funds for Medicare for All and for affordable housing from the Pentagon budget. There's two different ways to do that. One is by closing some U.S. military bases overseas, which I think ultimately those bases undermine our national security. They seem to enhance it in the sense of projecting a dumb power but they also inflict harms on our smart power. Like which ones? Would you, do you have some in mind? I mean, if you think about the U.S. bases in Okinawa, they've been very controversial in Japan because U.S. service members there have been implicated in rapes and human rights abuses. And it, it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because mm-hmm. these are young men torn from their homes and they're sent abroad not to fight war, but to project our interests into other countries. And the idea that we call it a Department of Defense is profoundly inapt mm-hmm. when we have military bases in over 150 countries around the world. Uh, so we can save money and enhance our national security by closing some of those bases and re-diverting those funds to social services that we need. The other thing we can do with respect to reclaiming Pentagon resources is to cancel fraudulent uh, corporate contracts for weapons. And there's one in particular I talk about a lot, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, mm-hmm. from which we could recover a trillion and a half dollars. That's 1,500 billions over the next 50 years. You're saying this is a plane that has, has failed, has not uh, performed up to uh, uh, projections. That's right. Yeah, it was actually they started building it before they finished designing it, which is to say the cost overruns and the failures of the subsequent designs are entirely predictable. It's been described as the object of pro, uh, procurement malpractice, and the program lacks any strategic rationale, and as executed, it falls short of every one of the benchmarks that each of the service branches that commissioned it set forth. And this is ultimately a corporate boondoggle, and if you contrast, and I'm very fond of doing this, the interests of Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman and Raytheon, you know, the military industrial complex, with those of veterans who signed up, who, did, who, who served the country in uniform, 11% of our homeless population around the country served in uniform. And the idea that they are sleeping on cardboard boxes in the rain while Lockheed Martin is walking away with a trillion and a half dollars from American taxpayers that we don't have to spend in the first place on a plane that we don't need and does not work offends me as deeply, quite frankly, as the co-optation of the internet as a tool for global surveillance. So with this kind of uh, this platform, you have uh, you know, the defense, housing, um, uh, cannabis, uh, and privacy, that's an, that's an unusual uh, coalition. Tell yeah. us about the coalition you're kind of building here that, you, yeah. that you're envisioning. I basically represent San Francisco's unique values. You know, San Francisco is a peace and justice town. We're an LGBT town. I played a role very early in the movement for marriage equality for mm-hmm. same-sex couples uh, long before mainstream Democrats did. And I did that as a Muslim young lawyer, of which I'm very proud. So we're an LGBT town. We're a peace and justice town. We're a tech town. We are a free town. We are a town of iconoclasts. We have always been a city that has been populated by people who, quite frankly, shunned the East Coast (laughs) and other parts of the country. And and we, we should be proud of that. We have a value set here that has always been visionary. And that's the one that I aim to represent. You know, I don't fit neatly into a partisan box because I'm not a partisan. I'm a progressive. And when Democrats have abandoned progressive principles, I've been very sharp to call them out on yes. it. I have but cons- you are running as a Democrat. I am running yeah. as a Democrat, but I'm running, to, I'm running as a progressive anti-establishment Democrat. You might think of me as if you were able to remix Bernie Sanders, the ACLU, and the movement for black lives, I would be what you'd get. Wow. That's quite a mashup. Uh, I, I feel pretty compelled and, by it. Uh, the, um, what's, your, what's your path to victory here? We, yeah. we talked a little bit the other day when we were talking about uh, tech as a voting block of text in there. But, Tech, I think, and, and, and stick with me on this analogy, 
Tech is like Catholics. You know, <laughs> okay. there's no Catholic voting bloc. There's some labor Catholics. There's some really conservative Catholics. Uh, there's sure. some buffet Catholics. There's some abortion rights Catholics. But tech, I don't know what... Because there's some libertarian techs, there's techies, there's some, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, um, some uh, techies who are more into uh, social issues, blah, blah, sure. blah, blah. How do, you, what, how do you see tech as a voting bloc? When you first said that you were going to compare it to being Catholic, I wasn't sure where to go as a Muslim. I'm like, I don't know if I can really go here. <laughs> I was, I was going to handle the explaining on that as a no, no, buffet no, Catholic good. myself. No, yes, yes. And, well, and even as you frame <laughs> the question. Free, feel free to, 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 to chime in on that. No, no, I appreciate it. And I was just going to say that even as you asked the question, it's somewhat similar in that as a lawyer, you know, I'm commenting on techies, which is not unlike being a Muslim commenting on Catholics. But yes. I, I would say this. Uh, Welcome to politics, my friend. Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yes. no, it's true. But no, I, you're absolutely right. The, the sphere of people who work in the technology sector are diverse, and they have lots of different interests. And I don't think the tech votes as a sector, but I also think that people in the technology community haven't had anyone to speak to them for their interests, I think, in this city ever, right? And it's the, when I say their interests, some of them do coalesce. So even across their divisions, say, between libertarians and progressives, across that continuum, people in the tech sector who understand the import of government surveillance, who recognize that it's not privacy that surveillance offends, but rather democracy by inhibiting dissent. That where's, you, and where's Pelosi fail in this measure, from in, your perspective? In January, she undermined a proposed warrant requirement and basically carried the Trump administration's water, the Bush administration's water, which the Obama administration also carried, right? There is a continuity across the major parties uh, favoring the concentration and aggrandizement of executive power. And that should be constitutionally alarming. You know, you asked me a few minutes ago, like one of the things... Uh, that I got from growing up in the Midwest was a commitment to founding principles that I see both parties violating with impunity. And the reason they're able to get away with it is that they have a duopoly, right? And when, America, when, when the American people don't have an alternative, it's predictable that this kind of problem would result. I think people in the tech sector are like people in San Francisco have always been, free thinkers. They're independent thinkers. Uh, they're committed to liberty as a principle, even if they are also committed to social programs and progressive ideals. And I think uh, whatever their, maybe one last piece I'd say here is that people in the technology industry are not committed to established entrenched interests, right? They're much more willing to be iconoclast. They are independent thinkers, and many of them are very young. And I think between that mix of things, there is an openness to new alternatives. They're certainly not into party politics. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like, like most people. That's right. Young people. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, you've heard all the criticism of Pelosi from other folks uh, back in your native uh, Midwest and, yeah. and, else, and elsewhere saying that, you know, she's too liberal. She's too San Francisco. Uh, when at a time <laughs> it where... It makes me laugh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd be way more San Francisco than she would. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, and unapologetically. And unapologetically. And she, when, when the party should be trying to, to woo back uh, working class white voters. The way um, you woo back working class white voters is making sure that they can get to a doctor and making sure that veterans have a roof over their head and making sure that we have access to affordable housing, not by defending corporate interests. So the, the, the criticism of Nancy Pelosi, I think, in, by conservative actors has tended, to, uh, has tended to focus on rhetoric over reality. The reality of her representation is decidedly moderate, even conservative. And you can't claim to be a liberal when you sweep CIA torture under the rug. You can't claim to be liberal when you extend and expand the surveillance powers available to a criminally kleptocratic administration. Uh, and she certainly isn't the most liberal member of the House. She's not even the most liberal member of the Bay Area's congressional delegation. Mm. I mean, she's far and away the most conservative member of the Bay Area's congressional delegation. And I love this city too much to see us be represented by a relatively moderate, I dare say on some issues, conservative voice in Washington. All right. 
John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This thank, was fun. Thanks yeah, for having so, me on, Thanks for the... Uh, there, was, there was actually music in there. It was entertainment in the middle of this <laughs> podcast. This is wonderful. I'm happy to do it anytime. Okay, good luck with the race. Thank you for being it. on It's All Political. Wow. Thank you to Shahid. That was great. Uh, the little little entertainment in the middle of the podcast. Uh, we got deep, wonky stuff. That was a lot of fun. Thank you to him. Thank you to Brittany Shell for producing this. And thank you to, uh, to all of you for listening. Because uh, if you're a rapper or if you're not a rapper, it's all political. <laughs> <laughs>